Holy Father, in Hebrew and Swahili and English, when we lift up our hearts, our spirits to praise your name, the Alleluia sounds the same. It is an expression of deep gratitude. We linger just a little longer in your presence now with Holy Scripture front and center. May the Holy Spirit who inspired this teaching long, long ago be here, as Jesus said, to guide us. Guide us into all truth. We pray in his name. Amen. I hold here in my hands in the pulpit my dog-eared copy of C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity. You know, the, you know it's dog-eared when you have to put a rubber band around it to keep the pages inside. But some books are just worth hanging on to. I want to read a line from uh, Mere Christianity for two reasons. Number one, the line sets up, sets up our metaphor for this teaching today called the invasion. And then number two, I have been caught by surprise over the last few weeks, just the last few weeks, as I've added four young adults to my prayer list, my personal prayer list, four young adults who are wrestling over the existence of God. I need to tell you that C.S. Lewis, as a young man, was an atheist. It's okay. It's okay to have questions about faith. It's okay to to have doubt. It's not the end of the world. C.S. Lewis became a believer as a young man, a believer in Christ, and went on to become arguably the greatest apologist, the greatest defender of Christianity in the 20th century. Great mind and writings. So, he gave these talks actually over the BBC during World War II after the talks were given, after the war, collected and made, put into this book. So, this is uh, from page 50 of the little classic Mere Christianity. I freely admit, Lewis writes, that real Christianity, as distinct from Christianity in water, all right, watered down Christianity, real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. Dualism teaches there are two eternal forces, good and evil, they're both eternal. You're just stuck with them forever. But he says we might be closer to that. One of the things things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament as a young man, read it seriously, was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism. That this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we're living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Right on. I agree with C.S. Lewis. Now, here comes the line. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, landing behind enemy lines. I like the metaphor, landing in disguise, the invasion. A king, born a little baby in a village 2,000 years ago. Who's the king? And by the way, what in the world does that have to do with this teaching series we're in called the Sabbath? Do they fit? Watch the pieces fit. Let's, Let's explore it together. Open your Bible, please, to two books. We've done, we're going to do something today we have never done before, and that is we're going to read two books simultaneously. Book of Genesis and the book of John. So pull your Bible out. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible. We've got to go. 
We're going to fly through this. Two, by, uh, two books simultaneously. We're going to read just their openings, their prologues. You're going to be amazed, as I was, at the dramatic similarity between the opening to the Old Testament and the opening to the New Testament. You say, hey, wait a minute, Pastor. John's not the opening to the New Testament. It's Matthew. No, but John's prologue actually goes back before Bethlehem, way before, so we could call John effectively the prologue to the New Testament. So we got the Genesis and John. Now, everybody knows where Genesis 1 is, where we'll be. But John, if you have a ribbon in your Bible, take your ribbon right now because we're going, we're going to be going back and forth. Put your ribbon in John 1. If you've got a Bible with a ribbon, if you don't, put your bulletin in John 1. We'll get a study guide to you in just a second. We want to note seven strikingly dramatic parallels between Genesis and John. In fact, let's just do the study guide right now. Let's put the study guide. If you, did, if you came in today without a study guide, you didn't get a worship bulletin, ushers, thank you very much. Hold your hands up. Our friendly ushers will be by you in just a moment all the way to the back of the balcony. I want to make sure the choir has study guides as well. So uh, hold your hand up. You want to get these seven dramatic parallels. And those of you who are watching on television right now, we're very honored to have you. Thank you for joining us. Let me give a website, put it on the screen for you. It's, a, it's where you can find the study guide, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website for this New Perceptions telecast. Go to that website. You're looking for the teaching series entitled The Sabbath. This is part four in that series. There are only six parts. So we're moving into the second last half here. Uh, you're looking for The Sabbath. The teaching, this one is entitled the invasion. So when you find the invasion and it says study guide there, you got it. You click there, you will have the same study guide we do. I want to make sure, sure everybody gets one because we're going to fly. Yeah, keep your hand up in the back. While you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and start. All right, seven dramatic parallels, striking parallels between Genesis and John. What, you need, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to write the numbers down. You're going to need to write the references down. We put the books into the study guide. Let's put the first screen up. Genesis 1-1, so you write that in. And John 1, 1 through 3. All right, so the parallel number one. Here we go. Well, Genesis 1, 1, that's not hard to find. It's page one of our pew Bible. And it's the beginning of every Bible. So let's find Genesis 1, 1. And then we're going to start flying. Okay, Genesis 1, 1. Here are the familiar words in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. When we began, when we began this series three times ago. We remembered that in Christmas Eve, 1968, the Apollo crew, looking out the little space portal of their capsule, saw this terrestrial blue-green ball, and they quoted these words to a broadcast sent to the whole world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so we got that down. Let's take a look at John. See, I got a ribbon, so I can go straight to John 1. Put your study guide right in John 1 uh, if you don't have a ribbon. Let's look at John 1, verse 1. John 1. John 1, 1, in the beginning. Look at that. In the beginning. Different language, Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is capital W word. And the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Now notice verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. You know, that, that, that Greek word for word is logos. From whence comes the English word logo. He just dropped the S and we got a logo. You know what a logo is, don't you? A logo is that which becomes a visual representation of a reality that you can't see. But you have the logo. And when you see Andrews University's logo, you say, ah. When you see Pioneer's logo on the cover of our bulletin, up. Apple's logo on the back of a computer, all lighted up in white. Apple. You know the logo, what it represents. So, the word is a logo. It's a divine logo. See him. 
He represents the reality behind the logo, the logos. By the way, John is the only one of the New Testament writers to use this word logos to refer to one of the members of the Godhead. So it's a significant word. Um, I like this uh, Desire of Ages 19. It's in your study guide. Fill it in. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He was the word of God. He was God's thought made audible. Look at you and I look at each other right now. And neither of us, neither of us speaks. I have no idea what you're thinking. You have no idea what I'm thinking. I have to open my mouth. Once I put words to it, you know my thoughts. Once you put words to it, I know your thoughts. That's what the word, capital W word was. So what does parallel one between Genesis and John one teach us? Write it down. Christ is the creator. Christ is the creator of the world slash universe. No question. Genesis just says, God, John one comes along and says, let me tell you, it was Christ himself. By the way, not only John teaches that, not only uh, not only John, but Paul teaches it. Hebrew Hebrews teaches it as well. In fact, the New Testament is unequivocal. Jot this down. The active divine agent. See it there in your study guide. The active divine agent who created the earth in the beginning. The God who personally shaped Adam and Eve into existence was a pre-incarnate Christ. Genesis 2-7 when it says the Lord God made man out of the dust of the ground. That is Christ. He became Jesus. That's Christ over that little hunk of clay. We've got a personality we can put to the God of Genesis 1. That's Christ. In fact, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. I tell people, you want to know where Christ is the creator? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Let's go to Colossians 1. For by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the active agent of creation in the Godhead. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 and take a look at this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers and mothers by the prophets. God has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Christ is the creator, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself at Calvary purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's back on the throne. The creator of the universe was the baby born in Bethlehem. That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Christ himself. Okay, that's the longest one of the parallels. The rest will fly by. Here comes parallel number two. Jot it down. Genesis 1.26 and John 1.12. Now, I'm sorry, that's the wrong number. I jumped to three. Uh, parallel two. Genesis 1.3 and 4. Let's get it right. Genesis 1.3 and 4. And John chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 9. Okay, so you got the ribbon in John, so that means we can go back to Genesis. You won't lose your place. Put the study guide there in John, because that's usually when you'll write is after the John reading. Okay. So what is this in Genesis 1, verse 3 and 4? Okay, then God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. Verse 4, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Very clear. The Creator immediately is immersed in light. He's dealing with light. Is it true in the prologue of John? Take your ribbon. Now we go to John 1. Let's find out. Sure enough, look at this. John 1, verse 4. In Him, in Christ, the Word. In the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now move your finger down to verse 9. He was the true light which gives light to every man and woman coming into the world. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Christ, this is parallel 2, jot it down. Christ is the light of the world. Unmistakably, both prologues move from announcing the Creator to associating immediately the Creator with light 
and residual darkness. All right? That's clear. Parallel number three. Here we go. There are only seven of these. Parallel number three. Jot it down. Genesis 1. Now we go with verse 26. Genesis 1.26. Jot it down. John 1.12. All right? So here we go back again. Boy, aren't you glad we don't have to do this every week? This would take forever. All right. We go back to Genesis 1. We drop down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man and woman in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. But weren't those animals something in the uh, Messiah Mara? I tell you what, just let them have dominion over the entire population of animals, birds and fish. All right, that's Genesis 1. Now, can we find a parallel in John 1? Take your ribbon or your study guide, whip right back to John 1. And what are we looking for here? This would be uh, verse 12. So in Genesis 1, let's make uh, man in our image. And in verse 12 of John 1, it says, But as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Jot it down. Parallel number three. The inhabitants of earth are to be the children of God. Both prologues make it clear. Earth inhabitants are children of the divine Father in his image. Now, it's true. John comes along and says, Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Time out. You're not born automatically. No, no, no. You have to choose now because of the fall. You have to choose to be a part of that family. Nobody's forced to be in God's family. But if you accept Christ, you're in. All right. Parallel number four. Only seven of these. Parallel number four. Genesis three. Now, right down here, uh, one through 14, because that's the whole story. But we're not going to read one through 14. And then write down John one eleven, because the moment you see Genesis three, you, you remember it. People that read Genesis say, oh, boy, that's the story of Eve. That's the story of Eve at the tree. And this is the awful meltdown. You're right. Let's go to Genesis 3. Go to Genesis 3. I want to look at just one verse. We're going to go to verse 8. The whole story, you know, is, is, is so tragic. But this has to be the heartbreaker. The heartbreaker is verse 8. Because remember, Christ is the one who shaped them. Christ is the one who breathed life into Adam and then took a rib and breathed life into Eve. Christ is their forever friend. He is their creator. So this must have broken his heart when you get down to verse 8 after they've both eaten of the tree. And verse 8 says, And they heard, be Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's Christ. That's Christ. He said, I'm coming down from my friends. Hey guys, where are you? It's kind of quiet around here. What's up with that? You're usually here when I come. You're here to welcome me. Hey, anybody here? And then he sees the bush moving. He said, I never created a moving bush. Must be something behind it. That's what it says here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, can you believe this? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, sin tells the lie and we believe it. God is not somebody to be a friend of. He's somebody to be afraid of. God is not somebody to run to. He's somebody to run from. The serpent Lucifer has spun that lie from the very beginning and the human race has bitten it hook, line and sinker. Somebody to be afraid of. That's what sin has done to us. I tell you what, the heartache of verse 8 in chapter 3 can only be matched by the heartbreak of verse 11. Back in John 1. You know, I, before I ever looked at these parallels, I've always, I've always gotten a lump in my throat when I read verse 11. It's so sad in John 1. Look at John 1. It's just so sad. That verse is there, but it's so sad. Look at this. John 1, 11. Isn't this something? He came to His own. These are His own. These are his, this, is, this is my family. 
He came to his own, and what happened? His own did not receive him. Hey! They didn't run to him, they ran from him. You can't be, you can't be who you say you are. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Jot it down, please. Parallel number four, sin. It's clear in both, both prologues. Sin shatters our relationship with our Creator, and instead of running to him, we run from him. Parallel number five. Just seven of these. Here comes five. Genesis 3.15 and John 1.14 and then add 29. All right, so now leave your ribbon or study guide there. We've got to go back to Genesis 3. So God says, hey, guys, what's happening? Why, why are you hiding from me, Adam? What's the problem, boy? Adam says, well, I heard you coming and I was afraid. Why are you, why are you afraid? Because I'm naked. Hey, what do, you, what do you mean you're naked? Who told you you were naked? Did you, did you go near that? Did you eat from that tree? Yeah, well, let me tell you something. The woman you made and the one that you gave to me, she's the one that got me into it. Woman, Eve, is that true? You ate from the tree? Well, let me tell you something. The serpent you made is the one that got me into it. Serpent, is this true? It's sin. Always self-justification. I never take the blame. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's society's fault that I'm this way. Always twisting the blame. Turning it. Is that you, serpent? And then God speaks to the serpent. That would be verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, oh my, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'm going I'm to make a promise right now in this garden to the three of you. And here comes the promise. This is beautiful. Code language. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, serpent, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice it's capital S seed now. She's going to have, seed's going to come through her. And he, the seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if somebody took you and said, we've got a steamroller here and we're going to give you two places. You, you pick two places we're going to run over your body. We'll, we'll, we will either run over your head or we will run over your heel. Which would you choose? Please, go ahead. It'll kill me, but go ahead. See, the sea will come. He will crush your head. But you will be pain to him. You will crush his heel. Only one wins. The seed of the woman. Any parallel to that? Somebody coming into this human stream? Any parallel? But of course. Go back. Quick, quick. Take your ribbon. Go back to John 1. The parallel is inescapable. Look at this. Verse 14. John 1, verse 14. And the Word, remember the audible expression of God, became flesh. The visible now. He's not only audible, He's going to become visible. I am the God of the universe. I am. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched His tent right beside us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then just a few mo moments later in the story that begins in, in verse 29, John the baptizer sees Jesus coming and he cries out, Behold, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Savior is here. Ah, the promise of a... Coming deliverer. The word audible. Flesh visible. C.S. Lewis, jot this down. This is a line we began with. Lewis writing, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise. That's the invasion, guys. That's the invasion. He has invaded our space. He came in in disguise. 
on this enemy-occupied world. He did it in human form. And then I love this from Desire of Ages. Keep your pen there. So Christ set up his tabernacle in the midst of our human encampment. He pitched his tent by the side of the tents of men and women that he might dwell among us and make us familiar with his divine character and life. Since Christ, since Jesus came to dwell with us, we know that God, I love this, God is acquainted with our trials and sympathizes with our griefs. Every son and daughter of Adam may understand that our creator is the friend of sinners. Write that in. Our creator. Can you believe that? Our creator is our friend. For in every, this is good. For in every doctrine of grace, every promise of joy, every deed of love, every divine attraction presented in the Savior's life on earth, we see God with us. Write it down, please. Parallel number five. Our Creator came to earth to become our Savior. Only seven of these. We come to the next of the last. Parallel number six. Jot it down, please. Genesis 1.31. And then write in... 2, 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. That's for Genesis. And then for John, write down. Oh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna now fly to the end. The mighty, the mighty epic. The finale of John, 1930. So write that in. Now let's do a little bit of a, of a review here. We did this in a previous teaching in this series. Let's do the Reader's Digest version of every, every 24-hour period. Remember the creation hours. The Hebrew's clear. These are 24-hour periods. So you tell me, day one, 24-hour day one, what did God create? Light. Good. 24-hour day two, what did God create? Atmosphere, very good. 24-hour day three, what did God create? Earth, and on top of the earth? Trees and flowers. 24-hour day four, what did God create? Solar system. Yep, sun, moon, and the planets. 24-hour day five, what did God create in the air? And in the sea? And 24-hour day six, what did God create? Ah, all of them. Long neck, long trunk. What a God of variety, huh? Could have made them all looking like us. How sad. Oh, by the way, day six, what else did God create? You and me. All right. So now, we went, Genesis 1, day six is over. I don't want to reread that line again with you. Genesis 131. Genesis 131, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was Whoa, very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now go to verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were what, church? Were what? Were finished. Were finished. Any such parallel in the Gospel of John? How does the Passion Week climax? Okay, let's fly to the Passion Week. Go to John 19. John 19. We're out of the prologue now. We're, we're, we're at the huge summation of the Gospel of John. This is Passion Week. This is Friday. The Lamb of God is about to die for the sins of the world, but just before He expires. Here we go. This is John 19. Now, it says verse 30, but we're going to pick it up in verse 28 just to have the context. After this, Jesus, knowing it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I thirst. Now, verse, they, the, the soldiers heard it. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge. So they stick that sponge in with a hyssop branch, and they get it soaked, and then they hold the sponge up to his broken, cracked lips, and they say, all right, drink. And he can just lick his tongue. That's all he can do. And then verse 30. Now, here we go on the screen. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, what did he say? He cried it like a trumpet call. What did he cry out? It is finished. And then notice this. And bowing his head, 
He gave up his spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, that's intentional death. Autonomic death, which means, you know, all of a sudden I quit breathing. Autonomic death is I'm breathing here and the sun is gone and then my head drops. Intentional death is you lower your head first and then you stop breathing. He came to the hour, the moment of his sacrifice. Jot it down, ladies and gentlemen, day six of the creation week and day six of the passion week. Here's the parallel number six. Both end with the same declaration. It is finished. Thus the heavens and the earth and the host of them were finished. That's Genesis. Thus the plan of salvation to save the host of lost sinners was completed. That's John 19. Our Creator becomes our Savior and finishes His work on the sixth day of both weeks. Creation week and Passion week. Now we're ready for number seven. What's all this have to do with the Sabbath? Take a look at this. Final parallel. Parallel number seven. We're going to go to Genesis and John again with a little help from one of our synoptics. Let's do this first. Question. What did the Creator do after He finished His work on the sixth day of creation week? Answer. The same thing He did when He finished His work on the sixth day of the Passion Week. Write it in. He rested. He rested. Now we go back. One last time to Genesis. Genesis 2 now. Now you can write, fill in the parallel. Genesis 2, 2 and 3. Go back. And by the way, I'm going to read Christ into it because we, it's, it's incontrovertibly clear, the New Testament. So we can read Christ into this. So that's what I'm going to do. Genesis 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, Christ, the active divine agent of creation. And on the seventh day, Christ ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Verse 3. Then Christ blessed the seventh day. Remember when we talked about what that word means in the Hebrew? You, you turn your face. You turn your face. You are so caught up in it. Blessing in Hebrew means to turn your face to it. And it says he blessed it and he sanctified it. That means you infuse it with your divine presence. So he poured himself into that seventh day. And Christ blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which Christ had created and made. What did Christ do when his work as creator was finished? He rested. What did Christ do when his work of Savior was completed? What did he do? Go back. John 19. Back to the story. John 19. Not where our ribbon is, is it? It's all right, you got it. John 19. Drop down to verse 41. Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. He's sleeping now. Now we need our help from Dr. Luke, the physician, because he, he paints in a little bit more of a detail. And so just, just turn back to Luke 23. This will be our last text. Luke 23. This is Luke's uh, Calvary account. And let's uh, drop down to the end of 23. Pick it up in verse 52. Luke's talking, describing the moment when Joseph of Arimathea. Remember that? Joseph comes to the Roman governor. Pilate said, I want the body. What do you want the body for? The guy's a crip. I want the body. Can I have it, sir? You may have it. All right. So that's uh, verse 52. And so this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he, Joseph, took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Scholars are thinking, you know what? That's his own tomb. He was going to be buried there. He gave up his sepulcher, his family plot for his master. Now, what, what day was that? Verse 54. Now, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. 
So it's Friday. Sabbath is drawing near. Well, we all call it Good Friday. We know it's Friday. It's Good Friday, the day Jesus died. And the Sabbath drew near, verse 55, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they, by the way, that they is not just the women, that's Joseph and Jesus, everybody in this paragraph, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. What commandment would that be? That would be the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They rested according to the commandment. Write it down, will you please, ladies and gentlemen? They, all of them, Joseph of Arimathea, the women and Jesus, rested on the Sabbath according to the fourth commandment. Isn't that amazing? Even as he did on the seventh day of the creation week, so the creator turned savior now does on the seventh day of the passion week. He rests. He who is Lord of the seventh day Sabbath becomes he who is Lord of salvation. And when he became not only Lord of the Sabbath, but now when he becomes Lord of salvation, he, he does as he did in the beginning. He keeps, he keeps the Sabbath that he's Lord of. By the way, it's the Sabbath that he wrote with his own finger. Didn't he write? You say, how do you know that that was Jesus? On the, that was the pre-incarnate Christ. Well, piece of cake. John 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And it's very clear that I am is the one who stepped out of that cloud of glory and with his own finger carved all Ten Commandments into granite. But wouldn't you expect the one who wrote the Ten Commandments to honor the day that he is Lord of? In fact, jot this down, will you? This is quoting Matthew 12 and Mark 2. After all, did not Jesus declare, jot it down, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Gospels are clear. He's Lord of the Sabbath, which, by the way, keep your pen moving, makes the seventh day the Lord's day. What, what day of the week is the Lord's day? It's the day he's Lord of. What's he Lord of? Bible's clear. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, he's the Lord. He's the one who made it and gave it to the human race in the beginning. Why wouldn't he be Lord? Please. It's the day he sanctified. It's the day he blessed. It's the day he rested, which, ladies and gentlemen, leads us to the concluding point. It is a compelling point, and I wish you would write it down. These seven parallels between Genesis and John provide incontrovertible evidence that the creator's universal gift of the seventh day Sabbath at creation remains, remains his universal gift in redemption today. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord and I change not. I don't change. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is not rocket science. This is prayerful, logical thinking. I need to ask a, a series of questions here. Were Christ to have changed his mind? Okay, okay, I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I'm changing the day. Were Christ to have changed his mind? Should we not expect to hear something from Jesus indicating the fact that he's done so? I mean, somewhere between the resurrection and the ascension. Say, hey, time out, guys. I just need to tell you, things have been changed. I know I wrote it in rock, but forget it. I'm changing it now. Wouldn't he say something? Just a hint. Maybe a breath. Just a, 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 a suggestion. Zero. Not even a breath. What's up with that? Instead... Clear. In fact, M. L. Andreessen, in his carefully reasoned book, The Sabbath, he puts it this way, and you have it in your study guide. Let me read it in your hearing. God Himself, 
This is careful logic here. God himself led the way in the observance of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Did it in the beginning, did it on Mount Sinai. He himself proclaimed it in flaming fire from the mount, that would be Mount Sinai. He himself wrote it in enduring stone. Millions of God's people were witnesses at the base of Mount Sinai, and they heard the proclamation, and myriad, myriads of angels were there, Psalm 68:17. None of these conditions was present at the time when the first day of the week was supposed to have been instituted. Sunday came in unannounced, unheralded, unnoticed, in every way an anticlimax to the original institution and inauguration of the Sabbath of the Lord. Now he goes on. If God had wanted anything to do with the first day of the week, we must draw the conclusion that he wanted the change to be made in the most secret and inconspicuous way possible. For on that first Sunday, italics are his, nobody knew that any change had been made, not even the disciples, who some say were the ones who were supposed to have changed it. They were in as complete ignorance as the rest, having locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews. End quote. The fact remains... There is not a solitary hint. There is not a single word in all the New Testament indicating that Christ changed his mind as creator and changed the day. Nowhere. Nowhere. Not from the apostles. Not from the Savior. I mean, come on, think with me. Would Jesus have declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath knowing that in just a few days the whole thing's over? I mean, why would you say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and a few days later, it's gone? To the contrary, do you know what Jesus did? He told his disciples, 40 years after I'm gone, 40 years after I'm back in heaven, you will still be worshiping on the seventh-day Sabbath. He told them. It's in the great chapter of, of prophecy, Christ's predictions. Look at this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation... That would be the Romans, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. When the Romans invade this city, I'm going to tell you something. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, guys, just get out of the land. Flee to the mountains. Now notice verse 20. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Christ is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem's temple in 70 A.D., and he says, you will be celebrating the Sabbath then. Pray to the Lord of the Sabbath to be your defense, your deliverer. Call upon me. Call upon me when the city melts down and burns the temple. The evidence is clear and compelling. Jot it down. The seventh day Sabbath remains the Lord's day today. It's it. Neither Christ nor the apostles knew or taught any other. Their silence is deafening. Deafening. And any scholar of the New Testament will tell you that in fact, this is true. Then how can it be, you ask? Come on, come on, Dwight, please. Nearly all of Christendom today is worshiping on the first day of the week rather than the Bible's seventh-day Sabbath. How can it be? You can't tell me that all these churches are wrong. I want to share with you next week. I want to share with you one of the most fascinating studies, stories. We'll call it the case of Dr. Eck. I just found this. I never knew this. Just reading a couple months ago, came across the story of Martin Luther's trial. Dr. Eck, by the way, was the Roman Catholic protagonist for Martin Luther in that great trial. 
um, stunning bit of logic that Dr. Leck, Dr. Eck uses. I want to share that with you next week. Please, wherever you are, just get back here. Get back here for next week. You're watching on television. Join us next week. Listen on the radio. Turn on the radio. Please join us. Fascinating study. Listen, got to end. We began with C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity. Let me close now with another classic written by Charles Sheldon. It's the book, In His Steps. Written a century ago, the book became an international bestseller. If you don't have the book, any bookstore on earth, particularly Christian bookstores, will carry Sheldon's book, In His Steps. Now, it's a fictional, fictionalized story of a pastor named Henry Maxwell and his church, the First Church of Raymond. So it's Sunday. And the pastor is, pastor is waxing eloquent. He's preaching. He's just about ready to move to the summation of a sermon when down the center aisle of the church... We, it was a tramp, but now we don't call him tramps. We call him a homeless man. A homeless man is just stumbling down the center aisle. He gets down to the front and he looks up at the preacher asking for permission. And the distressed pastor, what else can I do? Go ahead. The beggar turns around and addresses the congregation. I've been out of work. I'm from New York City. I've been out of work. I came to your city a few days ago. I've been going from... I'm a printer by trade. I've been going from store to establishment to establishment, store, store, store. I've seen some of you. Not a single word of sympathy from you. My wife's dead. I've got a little girl left with a printer back in New York. You know what? I've been listening to your preacher. And the man had been sitting up in the balcony. I've been listening to your preacher. He's talking about following Jesus. I'm wondering what you mean about following Jesus. Does that mean you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Your intent about walking in his steps? The beggar half turned and collapsed. Carried him over to the parsonage. Three days later, he dies in the pastor's home. Charles Sheldon's brilliant story is the struggle of a congregation to come to grips with how do we live with the question, what would Jesus do? You know what? That is the, that is the perfect question to ask when it comes to the Seventh-day Sabbath. A lot of people, when it comes to the Seventh-day Sabbath, they don't ask them, Jesus is the last example we turn to. Listen, what would my friends do? What would my family do? What would my church do? Now, we need to learn as Christians that the question to ask is, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do when it comes to the Seventh-day Sabbath? You know what? We know what He did. Let me put a line on the screen for you. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16. You know what it says? Look at it. And as His custom was, Jesus went in on the Sabbath day to worship. What would Jesus do? I mean, look, what else would we expect the Creator to do on His day? And by the way, what else would He expect us to do on His day? So the question really is not, what would Jesus do? The more pressing question is, what shall we do? Hmm? What shall we do Given the Lordship, we who call Him Lord, given the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to pray with you. Let's bow together. Oh God, what will we do? We who follow Jesus. Some people are hearing this for the first time. Wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Some have heard it for a long time. But all of us are hearing the same invitation. Come, follow me. And so, Holy Father, 
Because we call Jesus Lord, we want to follow. Which is why I humbly pray that you will grant both your grace and your courage to men and women and young adults who with this teaching know in their hearts what Christ would have them to do. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. We've embraced Him as the Lord of salvation. May He be both for us always. We pray in His name. Amen.